Well, if you, uh, <clears throat> if you have your uh, Bibles, please open them to Psalm 150. Uh, there's Bibles there in the chair back in front of you. You're more than welcome to, uh, to open that up. It's the end of the Psalter, Psalm 150. Um, as I was reading about Psalm 150 this week, uh, there's a lot of commentators who, who see it as, as a kind of a culmination and, and uh, almost a, a simple, light call to praise. Um, and it certainly is a call to praise, isn't it? But I spent a, a good portion of the week this past week uh, out in Pennsylvania with my parents. And uh, we, they live down Lancaster Way, close to Gettysburg. And Dad and I watched a number of, of Gettysburg uh, recordings of the rangers, the historians who take tours. And, uh, and I was watching that, and as I was reading and, and studying Psalm 150, a scene came to mind, if you've seen the movie Gettysburg, from Ted Turner did it years ago. On the second day of battle, uh, Colonel Chamberlain is setting up his men of the 20th Maine at Little Round Top. And, and he tells them, he says, men, look, look to the left. There's no one there. And he says, we are the end of the Union Army. We're the extreme left. And he goes on to, to the significance of that, that they couldn't retreat, they couldn't withdraw. Because if they did, they would be flanked. They were the end. And it was a highly significant position, a highly significant moment. And it struck me, what if, what if Psalm 150 is that? What if Psalm 150 is not just a simple call to praise to end the Psalter, but what if, what if this has been highly intentional? In fact, some, some uh, writers have pointed out that the last five Psalms are all psalms of praise, and, and they suggest that they were written to kind of bring this crescendo of praise at the end of the Psalter. And one of them points out that Psalm 146 starts out, Oh, praise the Lord, O oh my soul, highly individual. And at the end of Psalm 150 that we're going to be looking at today, it says, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So it goes from the individual to everything. And that this psalm has great intentionality to it. And I think I'm going to uh, approach the psalm this way, that this psalm, that what it says is not a simple call to praise, but it's actually a, a summarizing, a, a bringing together, tying all the loose ends, we would say, of some of the themes and some of the things that are dominant in the psalm. And so we're going to approach it that way, and I'll let you at the end of the message here um, see what you think of uh, whether I'm right or not, but... But that's how we're going to approach it here. Um, so here's the structure of the psalm. Now, even though this is Psalm 150, and we're at the end, let me just say there's more than one way to break a psalm down. So I don't want to say this is the way, but this is how we're going to look at it today. Praise psalms always start and end with a call to praise the Lord. And then you can see in verses 1 and 2 that we're going to praise Him for reasons, for motivations. Here's why you should praise Him. And then, in verses 3 through the beginning of 6, the experience of it, the engagement with God in praise. So we have the reasons, and then the experience of it, and then, of course, at the end is the framework. So that's kind of the, the structure, the, the breakdown of how we're going to approach this psalm. You can see that this psalm has 13 times 
where the word hallelujah occurs. So if you have the ESV in front of you, every time it says praise the Lord, that's the word hallelujah. And uh, there's 12 of them that are in the imperative or commands. Praise the Lord. We're told to do it. In 6a, it's what's called a jussive form, which is more of a, an exhortation or a, or a wish or a desire. Let everything that has, this is how it should be. Praise the Lord. So we have this phrase coming again and again and again to praise Him, to give Him um, worship. And of course, the word praise here is linked to the name of the Psalms in Hebrews, which is the book of praises. And so we've come to the end here, and at the end, there is praise. At the end, there is music. Um, And this, this psalm answers four questions, and here are the four questions. Where is God to be praised? And that's going to be found in verse 1. Uh, why should he be praised is going to be answered by verse 2. How is God to be praised is going to be answered in verses 3 through 5. And who should praise God is going to be answered in verse 6. So we're going to look through these four, um, four different questions and how the psalm addresses them and answers them uh, this morning as kind of a a summary is kind of the end, the extreme right, of, or if we're in Hebrew, extreme left, of the Psalter. And if you turn the page, you'll see there's nothing there. This is the end of the Psalms for us. So let's jump in then in verse 1, where to praise God. Where is God to be praised? Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Or, or the word is actually firmament. Or if you have an ESV, you see the note there that says expanse at the bottom. It's the word that occurs in Genesis 1. The heavens, the sky above. Um, that's a bit of a problem, right? The sanctuary, His temple is gone. And how do we praise Him in the heavens? Is this some kind of a prognostication of air travel, and actually what we need to be doing is chartering sing-along air flights to praise Him in the heavens. I don't think that's what it means. Uh, some commentators, Derek Kidner for one, says that praise God in His, in his sanctuary, which is literally his, his holy place or His holiness, is in parallel with His mighty heavens or firmament, and so He's actually calling heavens and earth. It's a mirrorism, everything. In between is to praise the Lord. And, and that kind of does bear out in the beginning of verse 6, everything that has breath. But I struggle with calling the earth uh, holiness, it's holy place, because that, that word is usually referring to the temple, to the sanctuary. And I think that what's happening here, if I can suggest this, is that the reason for praising God in these two different realms is because in the Psalter, they are so closely connected that the God of the heavens is connected to the earth at His sanctuary. And He hears and He answers from Zion. He hears from His holy hill. And that's where He answers from. And this is really significant. But before, before I you know, talk about how it's significant, I want to convince you that I'm not making this up. So I've got a few 
verses here out of the Psalter that I want to show you that this connection between the heavens and the earth is, is a profound thing and, and occurs frequently. So here we are at the very beginning, Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So here's the one in the heavens, but where does he answer from? He answers by setting his king on Zion. And so you have the connection between the heavens and his holy hill. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And so here, again, you have that connection point being the sanctuary. And his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Later on, and, and there's a lot more than this, but I, I only got so much time and I thought you might get a little bored with just all the verses. But, but here's another one. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Where's that? That's the ark. Remember the cherubim that touch over the ark? He's enthroned on the cherubim, let the earth quake. He's great in Zion. He is exalted over all peoples. From, from Jerusalem he is? No, not really. Because he extends beyond Jerusalem. In fact, exalt the Lord, worship at his footstool. He sits enthroned, but it's actually his footstool because of his expanse over all peoples. So you see that connection there. You can see it again in Psalm 132. His resting place and his footstool and Zion and the ark are all brought together in this passage in 132. The God is above the heavens, he's in the heavens, above the heavens, over all, and yet he has chosen Zion, the ark, to be his resting place. And so there's this deep connection between heaven and earth. Um, now this isn't the psalm, but this might be by a guy that you've heard of, a fellow by the name of Jesus. When he taught his disciples to pray, look at what he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the will of God that Jesus came to do is this connection point between heaven and earth. Um, and you can see then uh, Jesus being that in, in the, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and even when Stephen was stoned, that he sees Christ in the heavens connecting the two. Now, the reason this is significant is for three reasons. Um, the first is, it's because the God of heaven hears his people. And so even though he is transcendent, he hears his people. Genesis 18, God hears what is going on in Sodom, and he pays attention to it. The Tower of Babel, they're building a temple for us to go down. Let's go down and see what's going on. Or... Or a great example is the end of Exodus 2, where God hears the groaning of his people, and he remembers the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the God of the heavens hears his people, but, but he answers them. He knows what is happening, and he, he is involved in their lives. And there has always been this point in the storyline, this location, this vehicle, this, this way that he resides with and answers his people from Zion, his holy hill. And so there, that, that heavens and earth have been connected at that point. You see what we've, what we've done here? We've unpacked 
the connection of how God deals with His people, and, and He deals with it in Jesus. That Jesus, the God-man, came to earth, and He is that point at which we, we know that God hears us and God answers us because of the man Christ Jesus. And so it's no mistake that all of the things that are involved in Zion were explicitly fulfilled in Jesus. Why did Jesus constantly go up on mountains? Because He was... He was explaining who he was, that he is the temple, that he is the one bringing the kingdom, and he's the son of David who can do it, that it's his city, Jerusalem, that, that he says, I, I long to gather you under my wings like a hen gathers its chicks, but you would not because it's his city. He's the refuge. Come to me, all you are heavy laden. And he, of course, is our salvation. The presence of God, and the list could go on and on. I haven't even put in the, the, the priest and the sacrifices and all. Everything about Zion is fulfilled in Jesus because he is that connection point. So when we read, praise God in his sanctuary, which we can't do because it's gone, praise him in his heavens, which still I'm wrapping around my head what that actually could mean, apart from the fact that what he's saying is all through the Psalter, the God of the heavens has answered us in his king that he has put in Zion. And so we can praise him in his sanctuary. We can praise him in his heavens because we know through that connection point, we of earth will experience the new heavens and the new earth through the man Christ Jesus. And so it gives content to our praise that it's not uh, a line that doesn't actually make sense. Actually, through the Psalter, this deep connection of a transcendent God who has become imminent here on earth drives us to praise. And so where to praise God is the location that he has made where he can answer us and dwell with us and live with us and save us. All of those things in the God-man, Christ Jesus. What about then, if we know where we're going to praise him, that, that we praise him and we have the ability to praise him because of his work in the Lord Jesus, because of this connection point, why? Why do it? Look at verse 2. Praise Him for His mighty deeds or His mighty acts or His mighty works. Praise Him according to His mighty greatness. His profound greatness. Greatness is uh, an interesting word, isn't it? It's apropos. Obviously, it's in the text. But it's one that, that we tend to have stripped of its meaning sometimes, and so we need to think about it because, you know, the Baltimore Orioles were supposed to be pretty bad, and they're having a great year. And after service today, if you want to have some great Mexican food right over on 4th, you can get some great. Or it's going to be a great day to go out to the park. Great has become a word that, that we have to unpack a little bit, right, because it's been so overused and can be used... Um, in so many different ways. A few years ago, a guy named Klaus Westermann wrote uh, um, an article, and he, in it he proposed um, that there are two kinds of praise. There's a declarative praise, which is a praise for what God has done. And this comes very close to thanksgiving. So we praise him for his mighty deeds in this case. But there's also a descriptive praise in which we praise him for who he is and who he is in character. And this would be verse 2b. So we have both of these kinds of praise in this psalm. And, and how is it then 
that we praise him. Let's, let's go with declarative first because it happens first. How do we properly praise God for his mighty works? Well, the Psalms have um, a number of things to say about that. We speak them. We sing them. We meditate on them. Remember, meditate is usually a word that means to mumble over. We make them known. We proclaim them. We extol him by saying and thanking and praising him for what he has done. This is important because in the, in the Psalter and, and in the Bible in its totality, what God does is a, is a direct outflow. There's an intrinsic connection between who God is and what he does. So if you think of, of John, say, in his epistle he says God is love. That's who he is. That's descriptive praise, right? But in John 3.16 it says that he sent his one and only son to die for us. And why did he do it? Because he so loved the world, right? Who he is has a direct flow out in the fact that he redeemed us, he saves us, he makes that connection between heaven and earth through the man Christ Jesus because of who he is, because he's a God of love and a God of justice and all his other attributes that, that, that focus in on that. But, but describing him helps us understand his motivation of why he does what he does. And why he does what he does helps us to understand him better. And so these two work together, and we need to praise him in that way. And the Psalms have a real corrective here to how we praise. I think it's really helpful into into seeing things correctly. Because there's three kinds of mighty works in the Psalms. The first is, you see there, of creation. That God is powerful. He's all, is over all. He has um, created things. He controls things. This would be the category where we say God is sovereign. If you think of Psalm 46, it starts off that, that if, if the entire world becomes decreated, that if the mountains go back into the sea the way they were in Genesis 1, that God is still in control. So that at the end of the psalm, that's that verse that we, don't, that we often misuse, when he says, be still and know that I am God, he's not speaking to his people, he's speaking to the enemies. And he's saying, stop fighting. Stop striving against God and know who He is, that He is the one who sustains His creation because He is the creator of it. He is the sovereign. And as the sovereign, the Psalms go on to say that He is the sustainer and provider for His people. He gives them their food in season. It happens numerous times. In fact, that's the reason the psalmists are writing so many laments, right? Because God is the one who sustains them and takes care of them. The third thing is a really interesting one, that God's creation uh, is is a a vehicle or an agent of of revelation. So if you think of Psalm 8, uh, O Lord, our governor, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, the heavens declare your handiwork. And then he goes on to say, and so who are we? Who is humanity? That you would give us the authority over that. It, 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 creation tells us who we are in relation to God. It explains that He is God and we are not. There's another psalm. Uh, C.S. Lewis said Psalm 19 was probably the, the greatest lyric poem ever written. And in it, the sun and its, and its all-pervasive heat is likened to the law and its all-pervasive heat 
surveillance of us. That just as we cannot escape the heat of the sun, we cannot escape the gaze of God's law as it searches us out. And so the psalmist ends asking that, that his words and the meditation of his heart, what he says and who he is inside, will be acceptable to God. And so creation provides the idea of how we understand the, 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 the greatness and pervasiveness of God's law. And finally, there's numerous places, as you know, where the Psalms talk about who we are and the brevity of our life, that we're like grass, that today is and tomorrow is gone. The wind passes over it and is no more. And so we learn again our place before God. It's revealed to us. There's a Psalm 39. I'll read uh, just part of it to you. The psalmist is struggling. He wants to say things. He's frustrated, but he knows that he can't say anything while the wicked are around him, his heart is hot within him, he says. And then he speaks with his tongue. And listen to what he says. Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my ages as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best is but vapor. Surely every man walks about like a shadow, and they busy themselves in vain, heaping up riches and not knowing who is going to get them. So the creator, provider, sustainer of his mighty deeds is one of the reasons that we praise him. And, and in some of the Psalms, then it flows into the next point of his mighty deeds, which is redemption. That the creator has not left the creation in its state that we caused it with our sin and rebellion, but he is actually buying it back through his gracious redemption. In E412 this morning, Paul led us through a discussion of the Exodus and the Passover, the beginning of those, of those great, well, maybe not the beginning, but, but the really big significant uh, moment in the plan of redemption that God is bringing them back. Psalm 135 talks all about God as creator and then moves right into God as redeemer. That the gracious God is making his world very good again. That's the plan that he is doing. He's bringing that redemption about, as I mentioned earlier, through Christ Jesus, isn't he? That Christ is, is fulfilling all these things, that we see the foreshadowing and the pictures that this activity has been focused in on what Jesus is going to do and bring in the new covenant. And so we have a, a creator, redeemer, God. And then we have the third one, which is providence. God's activity in our lives, that He is involved in what we do, and He is concerned with who we are and what's going on in our lives. The psalmist spent a, a huge amount of time here. That's what the laments are about, right? The laments are them, them asking God, do something. Things are not the way they should be. They're not how we want them. or They're not what we understood you to be doing when we entered into a relationship with you. Please rectify this situation. And so there's a lot of interest in the Psalms um, in God's providential act on their behalf. And, and here's where I think the Psalms can be a great corrective to us. We've got to see God as the good creator who is redeeming His creation and bringing it back into relationship with Him. That's His plan. That is what He is doing. And that's why Jesus is so important because He's doing it through Jesus. Colossians and those passages 
where Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Everything is being brought together in Him. Ephesians uh, talks about everything being brought together in Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike, everything. That He is the center of the plan that what God is doing. And our lives individually fit into that plan. That God in His all-knowingness, in His creatorship sovereignty, fits our lives into that greater plan of what He is doing as the Creator-Redeemer bringing everything back. And sometimes we're wondering how on earth it can fit in. How is it that what is happening to me can be in any way termed good? But when we understand who He is... And what He does flows out of who He is. We understand that the events of our lives, of our very short period of time in this great plan, are being fit in by His wondrous tapestry weaving. And even though there are really bad things happening, He's weaving it into that. And so when we view our lives, we're viewing them through the lens of His Creator-Redeemership. And as the providence God, we realize He is working everything together for good. And the New Testament writers are constantly telling us, hold on, you have not seen the end yet. Eye has not seen nor ear heard what He is planning. The corrective is that we so often do it the other way. We view our 70, 80 years by way of strength, Psalm 90, which I think that's that's Moses' psalm. But anyway... Uh, you know, we view our 80 years or whatever we have and we view God through the lens of what is happening in our lives. And so we say, well, can he be an all-powerful God if he allowed this tragedy to happen? Can he be an all-good God if, if he doesn't heal my loved ones or myself or if he doesn't provide the finances that we need, or if he doesn't do this, God can't be good if he's not doing these things. You see, if we, if we view it through the lens that God is on the, on the left there, we view it from the creation redemption, we see a good God who is working things out for us. But if we view it on the right with the red arrow, we've landed ourselves right into the middle of the problem of pain and suffering. Because we're interpreting everything that happens through We're the controlling factor, and we determine whether God is good enough by what He does in these 80 years. So as the psalmists call us to worship God by proclaiming His mighty deeds, we need to really keep ourselves in the right spot. Or we're going to start making accusations against Him that we don't have the perspective to do. And we have to trust Him that He is bringing all things together for good for those who love Christ, who are called according to Him because of His goodness. So praising His mighty works is an important thing. And as I said, oops, sorry. Um, the descriptive praise then, we don't have as much difficulty with the descriptive praise. We do that a lot in our, in our songs uh, and in our speech. If you pay attention, you'll hear it a lot. His holiness, His goodness, his redemptive um, grace to us in Christ. Uh, one of the biggest ones in the Psalms is his justice and his righteousness. Those are terms that are linked to his, his covenant, his agreement with us, that God does what is right. Isn't that interesting in light of, of this? 
That we trust Him because He does what is right, even when our perspective limits it. Even when, when our hearts cry out um, because of the pain <clears throat> and because of the suffering, because we think things should be different, God is a God who does what is right, who does what is righteous. He, he keeps His promises. And so the descriptive praise uh, helps us to understand why He does what He does. And those two type, declarative and descriptive, are ways that we can praise Him uh, in His mighty deeds, praise Him for His overwhelming greatness. And those are the reasons why we praise. So we praise Him because He has connected uh, the realms of the heavens to the earth through Christ Jesus, the, the connection point. We praise Him because He is uh, a God who's whose character is of such profundity that he does such amazingly loving, gracious, and giving things. Well then, how? How is God to be praised? Well, a lot could be said here, because this section, you you can easily see, summarizes so many of the musical notations and so many of the musical elements of the Psalms. So let me just mention a couple of things here about music. And first is, I think what the Psalter shows us is that musical worship is how we as human beings worship best. That music allows us to worship best. It engages our emotions because we sing of things deeply meaningful to us. It engages our, our minds as we sing the lyrics. That's why the, the lyrics of our songs are so important. And, and some churches will sing the psalms because they want those lyrics to be literally God's word. Uh, music engages our imaginations. That's why the, the psalms are poetry with all of the images, all of the personifications and of, of mountains, uh, uh, clapping or trees clapping and, and rivers shouting and things like that. It, hug, it gauges our wills as we speak these things out. I've said before, when we speak things, we're, we're committing ourselves to them. We're forming our thoughts. We're, we're patterning our thoughts. And so as we, as we speak out these psalms <coughs> through music, we're engaging our wills to follow what we are speaking. And so this music engages all of us. And worshipful music, as you know, can, can change our demeanors. We can go from people who, like James 3, are, are speaking out uh, bad water and, and turning around and speaking out pure water. That music has the ability to change our minds. Music engages all of us. And I think that's the point with all of the instruments there's wind instruments, there's percussion instruments, there's stringed instruments. All of the orchestra is called together. All that, that exists is called to worship God. There's an interesting little construct here uh, in verses 3 and 4, 3 and 5, where there are four instruments uh, listed, and then there's dance, and then there's four more interests. So you have that little, that little chiasm there, and dance is at the center. So at the closing hymn, guess what we're all going to do? 
That is not going to happen. At least, at least with one of us, I know it's not going to happen. But I think that what the psalmist is saying there is exactly what, what, what is being described here. It engages all of you. That all of us is engaged, are engaged in, in worship, in music, and that dance is, in, its, in its proper context is a good thing because it's all of us that he is um, receiving worship from. There's a second thing about music, and I'm almost embarrassed to say it because it's uh, Craig Broyles talked about it in his, in his commentary, and it's just so obvious. It's, it's so obvious now that somebody else has said it, of course. But, but he says the Psalms were inspired by God. When he wanted to give us words to worship him by, he gave us songs. He gave us song lyrics. And Craig said, points out it's because God loves music. He loves music, and he wants his people to use music to extol who he is and what he's done and who we are in relationship to him and the fact that he has connected earth and heaven through his redemptive work in his son Jesus the fulfillment of the temple and that songs express this and so we sing music because we were given music these prayers and these poems are music and so we can take them and they provide a vehicle for us, and I think that the, the dance is a little tied up in this, in that we, when we sing, when we, when we dance, we lose our self-centeredness, we lose our self-focus, and we're focusing on somebody else. Music has that capacity, it's a vehicle for us to move away from ourselves and to extol the one who created us and who is redeeming us. It takes us out of our time bound focus to gaze upon him. And then final, the final question then, uh, I forgot the title, it's supposed, there's supposed to be a slide in there that says, who is to praise? Who is to praise? And this is in verse 6a, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. This is the lone non-command in the text. At least it's not in that um, linguistic form. But it's the intent, isn't it? The psalmist wants everything that has breath to praise the Lord. All of earth, all of heaven, all of breath he wants to be praising God. Now I think he's talking about everything... But, but most importantly, us who have breath. So people are the most important category in that. But, but look here at Psalm 148. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, not usually things we think of having breath, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth, all peoples, princes, rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Everything finds its meaning in praising the Creator. And so the pinnacle of that, as you can see in Psalm 148, 
are the people that God has created. We, in His image, are called to praise Him. James Mays makes an interesting observation when he says that the only thing that we really possess in this lifetime is our breath. Everything else we can lose. But when we lose our breath, we're over, we're done. And then he goes on to say that in Genesis, God breathed into Adam and the dust became a living being. And Psalm 146 says that when we lose our breath, we return to the dust. That what makes us distinctive is the breath that God has given us. And what better use of our breath than to praise Him? But here's a really interesting thing. In in both Testaments, the word for breath and the word for spirit are usually the same. That God has spirited into Adam the life. And into the new Adam, it was the Spirit who breathed life into Mary, right? They were both breathed out, spirited out, new life. And so the, the old Adam and the new Adam, there's a, there's a life here that rebelled and, and became apart from God. And so what did he do here in the new Adam? He gives us a new spirit. He gives us a new breath. He gives us a new life, one that's not going to just return to dust, although our bodies might for a little while. But we have now a life, we have a breath that we can use to praise Him because that, through the Lord Christ Jesus, has given us a life and a breath that will not end. And so this breath has been renewed by Christ, made new by Him in His death and His resurrection, so that we can praise and we can know that we're going to be doing that forever. So that you see the ideal examples of praise then. Here's one, Philippians 2, where Paul breaks out after the, after the great hymn in the first part of the chapter. He says, God has highly exalted Him, Jesus, bestowed on Him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, everything, all breath, Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's that connection point, too. Everything of the creation order through the connection of Jesus is going to glorify God. And when we get a glimpse into the throne room in heaven in Revelation, this is what is being sung. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb Be blessing, honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. That is what the psalmist in Psalm 150 says that we have been created for. That is the breath that has been redeemed by our gracious, redeeming Creator God through the Lord Jesus. That is what our highest calling is and what we'll be doing through eternity. Enjoying Him, extolling Him. And so with the psalmist, may it be, that our lives are lived, and at the end, we're people of praise. So let's take a few moments now, think through this psalm, pray through this psalm, before we close with our final songs.